add my greeting to you all. It's great to worship together with you. And um, I also would invite you to turn in your Bibles or your electronic devices, as it were, to um, John chapter 8. We're going to give our attention to verses 31 through 59. And before we do, let's pray together. Father in heaven, it's it's nothing short of a miracle that you would choose to communicate yourself to us, to disclose yourself to us, to make plain to us your personhood and your will and your purpose. We marvel at that. And we are so thankful for Scripture, which gives us such clear and objective communication of yourself. We're thankful for the person and the work, the life, the death, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is such a display of yourself. We're thankful for the the Holy Spirit, by whom, through whom you, you apply your word, you Through the work of the Spirit, you open eyes, not just the eyes of our heads, but the eyes of our hearts. And that is what we need from you today, for no human being, no flesh and blood can bring about that kind of work, heart work. It's beyond us, and so we're turning to you to do it. Open the eyes of our hearts. Open our hearts to hear and see, behold, taste, experience all that you are for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So follow along. I'm going to read verses uh, 31 to 59 of John chapter 8. This is God's holy word. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, Just let that phrase uh, register in your thoughts for a second. Jesus is addressing, he's speaking to people who are professing believers. They had believed in him, okay? If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, You will be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, 
Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan, have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, well, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, and yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. There's a, a, a stunning and, and really unanticipated progression in this, this narrative. The, the, the passage begins with Jesus addressing a group of people uh, who had professed faith in him. 
They had believed in him, as it says. And, and his first words to them are so inspiring and uh, liberating. You will know the truth, and the, the truth will set you free. And so, how did it get to verse 59? How, how, how did it get to professing believers picking up stones... And, you know, we're not talking about little pebble-sized rocks. You know, you sometimes flick at somebody just to irritate them. These are fist-sized stones. And the aim of these believers is to kill. It's a scene of believers turned adversaries, turned killers. And after initially believing in Jesus, they, John has a category for this. Um, all the way back in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, it says, when Jesus was in Jerusalem, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that his do, he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So, so clearly, John means for us to understand that the, the question of whether someone's profession of faith is true, genuine, or not, cannot always be determined right away. After initially professing faith, but now as they more fully understand what Christ was calling them to, what it would cost them, especially in terms of what they have to admit to, own up to about themselves, these so-called believers are no longer interested in following Jesus. Following Christ uh, had lost its sheen, so to speak. They, they no longer want to fulfill what it would mean to be Jesus' disciples. And friends, listen, it, it, it's for this reason, this very reason, listen carefully, it's because of this possibility of one's initial interest, initial faith, and then after encountering the whole truth and not wanting it anymore and turning away from it, it's for this very reason that we all, each and every one of us, need to hear the teaching and the claim of this text. And here it is. Listen. Experiencing true freedom, that is, the true freedom that Christ alone can give, it requires receiving, receiving into our hearts the whole truth that Jesus speaks. The whole truth. The truth about ourselves that he speaks and the truth about himself that he speaks. This is so so crucial, experiencing the true freedom that Christ alone offers, can give. It requires receiving into our hearts and keeping that in our hearts, the whole truth that Jesus speaks, the whole truth about ourselves and the whole truth about himself. I want to show you where I get that with four observations here from 
John 8, 31 to 59. Here's the first one. It has to do with this, the universal condition of all humankind. Humankind is naturally, that is by nature, resolutely inclined to believe the best about itself, not the truth about itself. That's true of every one of us, right? You can go to any corner of the world, any culture, any people group, any ethnic subgroup, you will find this to be a fundamental truth about all humanity. The strongest, the most common temptation that all of us universally face is the desire to feel good about ourselves. I know it's true of me. And I'm persuaded that it's true of also all of you. The deepest desire of our hearts that we all share in common is to feel good about ourselves by virtue of confidence in something about ourselves. Now, it, it gets played out certainly in different cultures, different ways, different historical situations, but the universal truth is that we are all naturally and resolutely inclined to believe the best about ourselves, not the truth about ourselves. And in John 8, 31 to 59, it gets played out in a group's national and religious heritage. In verse 32, when Jesus says, the truth will set you free, he's clearly implying that these people are not free. And they need to get free. Right? And, and the implication, this, the, the, these people vigorously, resolutely deny it. Verse 33, hey, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How dare you insinuate we are in any way morally deficient, enslaved. <laughs> Jesus touched a nerve. And the intensity with which they respond reveals that these people possess a certain and secure and resolute moral status based on their ethnic and religious heritage. They're holding fast to it. They're like bulldogs with it throughout the entire text. Verse 39, Abraham is our father. We are fine. Thank you. We don't need you. And so on the basis of their ethnic and religious heritage, these people believe that, well, they're in the family. You know, they're, they're firm on the fact that they're in the household of God. And because of it, they felt spiritually confident. And they held to this perspective with such conviction that they failed to own up to the truth about themselves. Persistently refused to consider. And, and listen, we, we, we all share this. They persistently refused to consider their real spiritual condition. They stubbornly persisted in refusing to acknowledge that they were in desperate need of a Savior. And this is the universal human condition. The resolute inclination to believe the best about oneself and not the truth about oneself. And sometimes it is uh, something religious in which we're apt to put our, our confidence in. It might be some organization. It might be a particular doctrinal affiliation. It could be 
that, you know, perhaps we went through some specific ritual. I, I know I have a, a dear friend um, who has a strong reaction to any conversation that I might initiative, uh, initiate about trusting and following Jesus. He's just like, wait, 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 wait. I, I was baptized as an infant and confirmed as a teenager. You know, that's all I need. End of conversation. Okay. So sometimes it's not religious at all. Sometimes people are just convinced about their own fundamental goodness, right? They're, they're, they're good citizens, good people. They're not like other people that are not clearly so good. And the result is that there is this, just this remarkable, amazing, prevalent conviction that most people, the majority of people, the vast majority of people are good enough on their own to get to heaven. I remember hearing R.C. Sproul say one time, he, he, he said the second the second most common misconception regarding the ground of our justification before God is that we're justified by our works. That is, God, of course, assuming we believe there is a God, will accept me into heaven, assuming there is a heaven, someday because I'm a decent person. And when, when Sproul says that the second most common misconception, don't, don't you just naturally wonder, well, what could then possibly be the most common misconception um, regarding the ground of our justification? To which R.C. Sproul responds, justification by death. That is, as soon as we die, we all go to heaven. Or nowhere, just nothing. Loved ones, that's the prevailing perspective. Human beings by nature, no matter who we are, no matter where we were born, no matter our ethnicity, no matter how old we are, what age, or our background, we are all inclined to believe the best about ourselves, not the truth about ourselves, such that, and this is a very sobering misconception, pretty much everyone's going to go to heaven. Things are okay. God accepts me as is, which leaves Jesus as nothing more than an add-on to our morally decent and acceptably good lives. But you see, Jesus is not simply an addition to our natural attainments. Jesus is not someone who just sort of complements, fills in, sort of rounds out what we are and all that we've done. Rather, Jesus is the savior of otherwise helpless people. Which is another truth that kind of grates. Helpless. I just hate that thought that I'm helpless. Jesus is just for weak people. And Jesus saves only those who recognize they need a Savior. Those who are desperate, those who have abandoned all hope in themselves and who realize that they have nowhere else to turn, which is an exceedingly hard thing for a person to admit. 
fact, it's nearly impossible to admit because by nature we are all inclined to believe the best about ourselves and not the truth about ourselves. So here's the second thing. When we persist in this believing the best about ourselves, we're actually participating in and promoting direct opposition to God. That this framework of thinking, you know, I, I am okay, I don't, I don't need a savior, that persistently holding to that, this perspective that we're good, believing the best about ourselves, it is actually a direct affront to God. After the Jews announce their lineage to Abraham in verse 33, Jesus responds in verse 37. I know that you're offspring of Abraham. You know, I, I'm not disputing the results of your 23andMe DNA test. That, that's not even an issue here. You seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. What works? What did Abraham do? What's the one thing above all the other things that Abraham is known for? I mean, probably most of us think of Abraham, we think of Isaac taken out in the woods to be sacrificed. Really, I think the supreme, the, the, the ultimate thing that Abraham is known for is he believed. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham is known as the father of faith. And when God gave him promises about a coming one who would be his very descendant, Abraham believed. And if these people were really offspring of the, the, the father of faith, they would do what Abraham did. Believe. Here before you is a man who is speaking to you the very words of God, and you aim to kill me. That's not what Abraham did. That's not conduct in keeping with your claim to be children of Abraham. Your conduct is actually directly opposite of Abraham's conduct. In fact, your conduct is really more in line with another father. Verse 41. You're doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality, a not-so-subtle, veiled suggestion about Jesus' origin, the man who had no human father, at least anybody knew of, Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I'm here. I, I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why? Why do you not understand what I say? Here's why. It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, 
and your will is to do your father's desires. In other words, when we persist in entrusting in ourselves, even if we may not be conscious of the fact that we are trusting in ourselves, we are, in fact, then aligning ourselves against God, self Righteousness, self-reliance, self-defense, self-preservation. This is, it's, it's just opposing the reality of a great God. So listen, there, there's a natural spiritual enmity uh, in all of us. It's always there. It's always operating against God. Sometimes blatantly, sometimes very subtly. This impulse is there and it remains there. It remains there until blatantly or subtly, it, it remains there until we yield completely to Christ. Now, here's a third observation. This is just kind of the opposite side of the coin of, of the second one. This, this self-righteousness, this self-sufficiency that, that you know, I'm, I'm good enough based on my own merits, it not, only is, um, it not only is in, in direct opposition to God, it keeps us from benefiting from that which Jesus came to offer us, to bless us with. That this posture of self-protection, whether it's manifest in this pride of, of spiritual arrogance or it's manifest in this pride of false humility or manifest in the pride of self-loathing, woe is me, it deprives us of the very blessings that Jesus came to give. Loved ones, just consider the incredible gifts, benefits that Jesus came to offer. Verse 31, first of all, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Verse 36. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. It, it, you know, like imagine freedom from the enslavement of sin given to you, given to me personally. By the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine the, the, um, the freedom from enslavement to the weight of guilt. How? Through forgiveness. Given to you. Given to me personally. By Jesus Christ. Imagine freedom from the ongoing dominion and mastery of sin's power in your life. How? Through the breaking of sins, mastery and power and dominion in your life. Personally, by the person of Jesus Christ. Imagine freedom from debilitating hopelessness and shame. How? Through the encouragement that there is redemption. There's freedom of every shameful failure committed by you. And every shameful violation committed against you. This redemption, freedom, personally overturned by Christ Jesus. Loved ones, if the Son sets you free, you will be free. 
free from the enslavement. Not just the appearance of freedom, not just a momentary sense of freedom. What Jesus offers is real freedom. Real freedom for your mind, for your heart, for your eternity. And, 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 and then look at what this posture, this, again, our, the nature of a human being, this posture of self-defensiveness is. Verse 33, this offer of great freedom. And they say, well, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. I mean, what are you talking about? Free. We're free. We've always been free. How do you say you'll become free? It's just right there. Besides freedom from enslavement to sin, there's another even more extraordinary benefit Christ came to offer. And we see it in verse 51 when Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone, if anyone believes my word, keeps my word, abides in my word, receives all my word, holds on to my word, puts their faith in my word, he will never see death. Now, Jesus is, is not saying that you won't die physically. Physical death, really, in the grand scheme of things, is, is not that big of a deal. It's a, it's a light and momentary affliction. What Jesus is saying is, you will not die like you otherwise would. You will never have to confront the reality of death as the beginning of your final separation from God. No, your death will be a passing into eternal life. What a benefit that is. What a gift that is. If anyone keeps my word, he'll never die. And then again, notice this, just how persistent this posture of Self-righteousness, self-defensiveness, self-sufficiency just responds again in verse 52. The Jews said to him, well, now we know you're a nut job. Now we know you're insane. Now we know you're a demon. Everybody dies. Who do you think you are? Are you greater than Abraham? And Jesus is going to answer that question in a, in a moment. But, but just pause just think about the incredible benefit that Jesus offers to us. Freedom from enslavement to sin. Freedom from enslavement to the fear of death. Listen, I don't know where you're at today, but I'll bet there are folks here who know what it is to be enslaved by sin. And you know what Jesus says? I can set you free from that. I can give you freedom. And there are those here who are enslaved by a paralyzing fear of death. And you know what Jesus says? I can deal with that too. I can set you free from the fear of death. I have life to give you. I have so much to offer you. But these people... In this text, maintaining this state of self-righteousness and self-defensiveness and self-preservation and self-sufficiency. 
deficiency. They, just, they will have none of this. They deprive themselves of these sweet, mind-blowing gifts. Loved ones, Christ Jesus is a savior only of those who own up to the reality that they have nowhere else to turn. Here's the last thing. Experiencing this freedom, the freedom that Christ and Christ alone can give, requires receiving it, all of it, into our hearts. The, the whole thing. All of it. The whole truth about Jesus. That is the whole truth that Jesus speaks about himself. We've, he has said a lot of things about himself in John 7 and 8 at this feast. And also, it means receiving the whole truth about ourselves. The whole truth about ourselves and the whole truth that Jesus speaks about himself. You, you notice in this text, um, this, just this continuous emphasis when Jesus is speaking. It's, the emphasis is on his word. It's on the truth. It's on what he's speaking. It's on the fact that he's speaking God's words. You see that? Freedom isn't going to come from any place else. But what he speaks, the truth about himself that he's heard the Father speak. Look at verse 31. If you abide in my word, Verse 37, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Verse 38, I speak of what I have seen with my father. You do what you have heard from your father. Verse 40, now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. Verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So Jesus is saying that that there's a truth, there's a word that he is speaking. There's a truth I'm speaking, a truth that God is speaking through me. That's the key. And what was, must we do? We must believe that truth. Now listen, listen carefully, because I think this is what's so crucial in this text. We must believe that truth not just initially. They had believed in him. At the end, they want to kill him. We must believe that truth, not just initially. He says, if you abide in my words, you are truly my disciples. You see, a genuine believer remains in the truth that Jesus speaks. A genuine believer receives it, believes it, abides in it. If anyone keeps, keeps, present, active, continuous action, 
If anyone keeps my word, what word? What's the word about us? The truth that we're lost, the truth that we're enslaved, the truth that by nature we are at enmity with God, and that we always want to believe the best about ourselves as opposed to the truth about ourselves. Believe the truth about ourselves that we are without hope in this world. There must be an honest acknowledgement that things are not okay with us apart from Christ. We've got to stop believing that lie that we're fine without Christ and instead believe and receive the truth that we're all helpless apart from Christ. But thankfully, Jesus' word is not just about us. His word is also about himself, that he's from God, that he is God, and that he's come to bring the life that only God can give, that he's come to bring living water to quench our soul thirst, that he's come to bring light and illumination, revealing the Father and the way to Him. And that God, the Father, is eager to glorify His Son and to show that His Son is, in fact, the One who is speaking and He is the way and the truth and the life. And everything that Jesus speaks about Himself comes to this incredible climax in verse 58. We start in verse... um, We start in verse 54. Jesus says, if I I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. If I'm I'm the only one speaking about my glory, well, then there's, there's reasons for you to doubt. But I'm not the only one speaking about my glory. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. Verse 56 Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he did see it and was glad. What Jesus means is that Abraham, many, many years before this, rejoiced in the promises that God had made to him, and he saw that God's intention was to provide blessing and salvation for humankind through the fulfillment of these promises. Abraham knew That in the fulfillment of these promises, God was going to accomplish a great salvation. And even more, Jesus says, what Abraham was looking forward to and believing in was me. He was looking forward to and believing in my day. And the emphasis when Jesus is speaking in that sentence is on the word my. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And and the Jews are just like incredulous to this. And and they respond, verse 57. So the Jews said, and you really are a nut job. You, you, You are not yet 50 years old. How can you make the claim that your life somehow overlaps with Abraham's life, your day and his day? And they're completely misunderstanding the chronology that Jesus is communicating, but Jesus in his great patience and gracious 
witness says, okay, okay, we're, we're kind of missing each other in understanding here. What I, I was making a point about was Abraham looking forward in history to my day. But since you raised the issue about the length of my existence, <laughs> let's go there. And, and then notice what Jesus, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, when Abraham was, I was too. He doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. Verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And right then and there, our minds are transported back hundreds, years, back to this place in the wilderness. Moses encountering a burning bush. And God came, spoke to Moses in and through that burning bush. And God speaks to Moses and tells him what Moses is supposed to do, how he's supposed to go back to Egypt and he's supposed to speak to Pharaoh, and he's supposed to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And after hearing all that from God, the living God, through a burning bush, Moses says, well, <laughs> who should I tell them sent me? And God says, tell them, I am sent you. And in saying that, on that day, in John chapter 8, Jesus was saying something that only God should say, right? And the people knew that. They knew he was saying something only God should say. They heard him. They understood what he was claiming and thinking that he was blaspheming. Verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. These believers, former believers, meant to kill him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So in these two chapters, 7 and 8, during the time of this Feast of the Tabernacles, Jesus, he's made a lot of claims about himself. And now he makes this statement, the piece de resistance of all the statements, right? Before Abraham was... I am. I mean, it is like an exclamation point, like a royal seal stamped on all the other claims he's made about himself. And it is a call to believe all that he has said about himself, about how desperately we really do need him, and about how he, Jesus, and Jesus alone can provide us with freedom for our souls. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Let's pray.